Magnus Podcast, episode 30, Into the World Beyond, with Dante and Anthony Esselin. And welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute. In today's episode, we're dropping back in on Dr. Anthony Esselin's course for the Albertus Magnus Institute Fellowship. And for this time, I wanted to leave the whole discussion on so you can really get a glimpse of the great fellows that we have. These are educators and uh, professionals, moms, dads, students from all walks of life. And in this class in particular, we have quite a few international students asking great questions. Hopefully you do enjoy the whole thing. And if you want to become a fellow and study, just like these fellows you're going to hear today, uh, join us, magnusinstitute.org. Apply for the fellowship now. It's completely free. So here is Dr. Anthony Esselin's class, part two on Dante Into the World Beyond. Enjoy. I, I had said last time that we're going to pick up a couple of scenes that I didn't get to in, in the first week. Uh, and. Uh, they are two of the most important um, uh, episodes in the whole Divine Comedy. They have to do with the with the two great faculties of man, as uh, Dante sees it, and he's not alone in this. Um, that is, we have a will, right, and our will is free, and we have the intellect. Okay, um, the intellect is supposed to inform the will. What is a good thing to desire? Okay. And in what way should you desire it? Um, what is the order in which you should desire it? That is, should you desire it more than you desire this other thing or which should come first? Uh, to what degree should you desire it? Right. The intellect informs the will of these things. If the intellect is seeing things clearly and sin does cloud the intellect. But uh, the intellect informs the will, and then the will chooses accordingly. Uh, I mean, it's kind of important to uh, uh, to note that in in the Latin and in, in the Italian that derives from the Latin, the, the phrase for free will, it really means free judgment. Okay, um, What you do is you place two possibilities or more possibilities before your mind, and you judge which of the things is better, worse. Uh, which of the things is to be preferred or not to be preferred and so forth, okay? And because we have reason, therefore, by necessity, they believe, because we have reason, therefore, uh, we have free judgment, okay? We we don't just merely follow, follow the instincts. We can choose this rather than that. Um, so uh, the, the two ways, if there, those are the two main faculties of man, then two ways... Uh, the two main ways we have of sinning is to get one of those things wrong. That is to have a corrupted intellect or a corrupted will. And they usually go, they, they go together, right? You can't corrupt the intellect without corrupting the will. And a corrupted will will cloud your intellect so that you no longer see clearly. Okay. Um, but uh, so I, I thought we would begin with Cano 5 uh, today because this is now explicitly about people who have reversed the relationship between the intellect and the will. Um, 
if you would go with me, if you've got my addition here to page 47, we're in Cano 5, uh, line 25 and following, all right? Now, now, this is the second circle of hell. The first circle of hell is where Virgil lives. Uh, that, those, that's a circle without any punishment, but without any hope. Um, unbaptized infants go there. The virtuous pagans go there. I won't want to talk about them today, but more about them um, in later classes. So these are the first people that we get in a circle of hell who are punished, all right? And this is the manner of their punishment, um, and the manner reflects the sin, or the manner is the sin. Um, I now begin to hear arising wails of sorrow. I have come where the great cries batter me, like a wave pounding the shore. It is a place where all light is struck dumb, moaning as when high winds from east and west wrestle upon the sea in a fierce storm. That hellish cyclone that can never rest snatches the spirits up in its driving whirl, whisks them about and beats and buffets them. And when they fall before the ruined slope, oh, then the shrieking, the laments, the cries, then they hurl curses at the power of God. I learned that such a torment was designed for the damned who were wicked in the flesh, who made their reason subject to desire. And as a flock of starlings, winter-beaten, founder upon their wings in widening turns, so did that whirlwind whip those evil souls, flinging them here and there and up and down, nor were they ever comforted by hope, no hope for rest, or even lesser pain. This is, they're flung everywhere, right? They, they're, they're like birds in the middle of a storm. They have no capacity to resist the winds, okay? Um, they go where the winds take them, and the winds are stormy. All right. Now, um, this is uh, I mean, this is a great example. It's like, um, like our first example of, uh, well, maybe the second. The opportunists in the, you know, the vestibule of hell would be the first example. What um, Dante will later on call contrapasso, that is the uh, the fit punishment for the crime, right? Um, in this case, what they suffer in uh, what they suffer physically is what they brought upon themselves uh, spiritually, right? Um, they gave themselves over to the whirlwind of desire, okay? Um, and now they are helpless before this whirlwind. They made themselves so, all right? And now the interesting thing here is that um, Dante could have focused on, uh, you know, re rather disgusting people who gave themselves over sexual sin. Right? This is the circle of lust, of lechery. Um, that would have been easy to do. He could have found out the medieval equivalent of, um, oh, I don't know, uh, the, the old publisher of Penthouse Magazine or something like that, right? And he doesn't do that, okay? Um, it's a deliberate choice because he's got he's got his own uh, tradition of love poetry in mind too. Okay, um, not to say that he is guilty of it, but we've got a couple hundred years of love poetry behind us, and some of that love poetry may be may be uh, preaching something that's not quite right. 
Okay. So in fact, the sinners that we meet in this ring are mostly admirable people on the outside. You would like to know them. They're nice people. Okay. Um, as, as Virgil starts to describe them, you know, some of them are just kind of, some of them are nasty, but most of them are not. Uh, line 64 and following. Helen of Troy then, see, for whom 10 years of ill revolved, and see the great Achilles, who fell in his last combat, all for love. That's following a certain tradition of Achilles' death that doesn't have to do with love, that does have to do with love, not with getting shot in the heel. See Paris, that's the guy who stole Helen of Troy from her husband Menelaus, brought her to Troy, caused 10 years of war and the destruction of his own nation. Okay. Tristan, um, who had an adulterous affair with uh, uh, his king's wife, Isolde, and then dumped her, uh, went to France. Uh, Tristan's a problematic figure, but these are noble figures. And he pointed out innumerable shades and named them all, whom love had severed from our life on earth. When I had heard my learned teacher name the courtly ladies and the knights of old, le donne antique et cavalieri. So these are ladies and cavaliers. All right. This is, this is in that old courtly love tradition. This is like Lancelot and Guinevere. We're going to meet in a moment. Um, he, he's his character, right? Dante, the character is taken aback. So, oh my gosh, these are, these are good people. Sort of. Okay. And he pities them. Now I want, as we go down further into the inferno, I want you to notice that this pity, um, this pity is going to wear a little thin. All right. He pities them at first. Maybe it's not quite the right response. Um, and he sees two, especially men and woman. He says, I really want to talk to those two. And Virgil says, well, maybe when the wind dies down, there'll be a pause, a temporary little pause in the storm. And then you can call them by the name of love. They'll come. Okay. They'll come over here. Maybe you can get to talk with them. And he does that. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, we go to page 51 here. The, the two are known to Dante personally and by reputation also. Okay, um, They're a man and woman from the city of Rimini uh, on the Adriatic coast. Um, the story is uh, a simple one and tragic one. It's a, absolutely a story for a good Italian opera. You know, um, A woman... Francesca is uh, compelled to marry a man that she does not love. Um, it's a political marriage because political in, in this, in, in these cases usually means this family over here is fighting against that family over there. This family is rich and powerful. You know, that, that, that family is rich and powerful. Uh, so, you know, they've been feuding, so we'll get the families together. It's a little bit like the mafia. Um, we get the families together and we'll have a marriage. So she is compelled into the marriage. It's an arranged marriage. The husband that she marries is ugly. Um, he's personally not, not, not kindly, not noble. 
He's got a hunchback. And his kid brother is really good looking and sweet. And guess what Francesca ends up doing? She ends up having a love affair with her brother-in-law. And um, uh, her brother-in-law is named Paolo. And her husband, Guido, discovers it. Discovers them, in fact, in the act. And he kills them both. Okay? So they are murdered in flagrante delicto, as they say. Um, and uh, no, there's no opportunity to repent. Um, they go straight to this place. Right? And it, 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 Dante goes out of his way to pick an example of people that we, we, we would feel sorry for. Right? These are otherwise nice people. Okay. Uh, but watch out, because the, because when you give yourself over to sin, you are not necessarily to be trusted in what you say. Okay. Um, so she comes over to him. She's the one who speaks. Okay. O living spirit, courteous and good, o animal grazioso e benigno. The Italian echoes the first line of Beatrice in this poem. O anima cortese mantuana. O courteous soul of Mantua. That's Beatrice addressing Virgil. So your Francesca sounds a little bit like Beatrice. Okay? Adane wrote love poetry to this Beatrice. Well, that's in the whole tradition of courtly love. And she speaks in that tradition. It should make you a little bit uncomfortable. Traveling the black night to visit us who left the word world dyed purple with our blood. Where he who rules the universe, our friend, that is God. See, it, we, we don't name Christ or Mary in hell. Okay. Where he rules the universe, our friend, we would entreat him. We would pray for your peace. For you have pitied us. A simple question that I would ask my students this all the time, right? Why do you even bother to say, um, if God were our friend, I would pray for you because you've been so kind as to pity me? Why bother to say it when God is not your friend and you have no intention to pray for him? Um, there's not going to be any prayer here. Why you say it is it's a rhetorical device. It's to capture the goodwill of the person to whom you're talking, but you're not going to actually do anything. Uh, so this is, I mean, this, this is a little bit sly. All right. Um, she doesn't care what happens to Dante. Uh, she wants to justify herself in Dante's eyes. And if that hurts Dante, that doesn't matter. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll talk with you. Okay. Uh, and on line a hundred, uh, she she um, she almost speaks as if as if she were herself a courtly love poet in the tradition um, since the days of Provence and uh, Provencal poetry a couple hundred years before. Love that flames soonest in the gentle heart. So if if you got by nature a noble heart, then love will be really quick to kindle in you. Okay, everybody wrote that way. Dante himself in his youth wrote that way. You need a noble heart, really, to fall in love. 
If you don't have a noble heart, you're not going to fall in love. You're going to be kind of low down. Love that flames soonest in the gentle heart seized him, Paolo, for that sweet body which was snatched from me. And how it happened hurts me still. Love that allows no loved one not to love. Amor canulo amato amar perdona. And if you say, gosh, that's a complicated clause there. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, that's how they wrote. It's highly artificial. What it means is simply this. Love, which is this force, does not permit the loved one not to love in return. So if you've got a noble heart and someone is in love with you, then amore does not permit you not to love them back. Uh, what's going on here? This is kind of rather strange psychology, um, but you'll note that if this is true, okay, then there is no free will. Um, Paolo is in love with Francesca. Uh, he's just taken by her body, right? Um, it's like flame that kindles spontaneously in him. Uh, and that means that she has to love him back because um, love doesn't permit anything otherwise. It seized me with such a strong delight in him that as you see, it will not leave me yet. Love led us to one death. Amor conduce noi ad una morte. The realm of Cain waits for the man who quenched us of our lives. That is, my husband, he's going to be down further lower, okay, at the very bottom of hell. And I'm glad of it. Now, uh, if you understand, see, we got to read Dante. You got to read him three different ways at once almost, you know. It's the way he wrote. Um, if by amor we mean God, okay, the God of love then what she says is true. That is, uh, if you understand it this way, God, who is love, does not pardon you if you do not love him in return, all right? However, because we are talking about love, we are not talking about compulsion. Uh, God wants us to love him. Therefore, he gives us the freedom of the will so that we can, in fact, love in return and not just do what would be necessitated or automatic, all right? If, if, so if we understand it, understand it that way, then the statement is true. But if we understand it in this other way, uh, sexual passion does not allow the person who is the object of the passion not to respond in kind, then the statement is patently false. Why would she say something that is patently false and make it sound pretty? Well, because she wants to deceive. All right. Frankly, she is a liar. Right. Why would she lie? I don't know. Why do we lie whenever we justify our sins? Um, she wants to justify or excuse what she has done. Okay. Um, and it doesn't matter to her that uh, this is itself a confirmation of the very sin she sinned, right? Her sin is, in essence, to have uh, reversed the hierarchy and made passion the master 
and intellect the servant. Okay. Um, that's the sin. And what she has just now affirmed is that that's reality. Okay. Um, but that's not reality. She's telling a lie, she's telling a lie to herself. Okay. I'm not saying that she doesn't believe this. I think she does believe it, but it's a lie. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, so Dante says, well, you know, how did it come about? I mean, how'd you ever get in this business in the first place? What happened? You know, I mean, there's you, there's your brother-in-law. Um, uh, he fell in love with you. How, how did you first become aware of this love? What, what, what brought it about? How did it happen? And uh, um, we get this magnificent speech here on page 53. You know, she says, the worst thing about being in misery is to recall a time when you weren't in misery, when you were happy. Your teacher knows this. Virgil knows it. Um, it actually comes from the Christian philosopher Boethius, the consolation of philosophy. Boethius, in his pain and his suffering, says something like this. It's no greater grief than be, to be in misery and to remember when you were not in misery. But I'll tell you about it, okay? One day we, too, were reading for delight about how love had mastered Lancelot. Okay, so I'm pausing right here. Y'all do recall uh, the Lancelot story. I mean, this is a this is just a little piece of what's left of the ruins of Western culture that people actually remember. I can say Lancelot, and pretty much everybody will know who I'm talking about. Okay, even college freshmen will recognize the name. They don't recognize the name of almost every great English poet who ever lived, but they still recognize Lancelot. And they'll know that Lancelot and Queen Guinevere, Arthur's wife, had an adulterous affair. Okay, Now, that adulterous affair is the root cause of the destruction of the Fellowship of the Round Table. Okay? Um, so if you're reading about it, and there's all kinds of poems everywhere with the Arthur story in them. Everybody's writing about every everybody does King Arthur stories right across Europe in all the languages. So she's got a book there. Perhaps it's written in the old French uh, by Pretin uh, de uh, Troyes. If she just keeps on reading, they read about what the consequences of this adulterous affair are. Okay. Unfortunately, they don't keep on reading. We were alone and innocent and felt no cause to fear. And as we read, at times we went pale as we caught each other's glance, but we were conquered by one point alone. There's one point that did us in. When we read that the much longed for smile accepted such a gentle lover's kiss, and gentle there means noble, okay, and gentle. This man, whom nothing will divide from me, trembled to place his lips upon my mouth. A pander was that author and his book. That day we did not read another page. And all the while one spirit told their tale, the other wept so sadly that I fell for pity of it 
there's a pity again, to a death-like faint, and I dropped like a body stricken dead. The effect upon Dante to hear about this is to lose consciousness. Okay. Um, that's not going to happen to him in the lower depths of hell. You can't let that happen to you, but it happens to him here. Um, and I think it's, if you, we should be made uneasy by this. Um, was the author a pander? A lot of my college, most of my college freshmen will not recognize the word. That, that's, that's a pimp, a procurer, a middleman, a go-between, Okay. The author's a go-between. He brought us together. He's like the, the person who brings together the prostitute and the customer. That's quite unfair. Okay. Um, uh, Francesca, you didn't obviously understand that author's intent. And you yourself say that you didn't read another page. Well, maybe if you had stopped right there and turn the page, it wouldn't have happened. But you didn't. You stopped reading. Okay. Um, Dante is worried to hear about the effect of his own poetry. He does not want his love poetry to um, encourage this sort of thing, to be that, to be a pander. Okay. Instead, I think what he wants in his love, his youthful love poetry, and now in the Divine Comedy, is to be an interceder, an intermediary. Okay, he has had intermediaries already. We we've learned that, right? Mary looks down, sees that he is lost. She appeals to Lucy. Lucy appeals to Beatrice. Beatrice appeals to Virgil. Right, um, and Dante is writing the poem in which this occurs, and the poem is also meant for us and our instruction um, so that uh, we can attain to bliss, but it's the eternal bliss, not the bliss of a night in a medieval motel on the Adriatic. Uh, there were no such, but you know what I mean, okay? Um, well, this is a way to get the passions wrong, and it's presented in as I said before, I mean, it would be really easy to give us just disgusting people for this sin. And he gives us nice people. He gives us the beautiful people. Right? And, and without any scorn attached to that word, they are beautiful. Right? You like to be in their company. However, here they are. Okay? Um, another uh, uh, person that we I want to look at here, also noble, though noble in a very different way, we find in Canto 10. So if you would go with me um, uh, now to Canto 10, go to page 101. We are now uh, uh, in the circle of the heretics, and the main heresy that Dante focuses on, this is a little bit of a surprise, because if you look, if you think about Christian history, right, um, the heresy that plagued the church in a very big way for centuries was the Arian heresy. So that you even had a parallel church. You had Arian bishops. You had Arian missionaries. 
Um, the Bible is translated into Gothic. That's an ancient East Germanic language. It's translated into Gothic by an Aryan missionary bishop. All right. Um, you, so you think that they would focus on? He doesn't. Uh, or other heresies that have to do with the priesthood or the nature of Christ or the Trinity, right? Uh, he doesn't. Instead, he, he focuses on uh, what for him is a fundamental way of getting your intellect wrong. And that's to believe that the whole world is made up only of matter and that therefore the soul, supposing that it exists, is mortal and dies with the body because it is only material too. So when the body bodily constitution is dissolved, so the soul, whatever it is, goes with it. Okay. Um, that for him is the fundamental heresy. And uh, I mean, it's an interesting kind of thing because it's the sort of thing that um, you have to give up Christianity as a whole to believe. And you would say, well, why, why focus on this? Well, if you think about it for a second, what it does is reduce the intellect to a material object itself, and it denies to the intellect um, objects of knowledge that are not material. In other words, it circumscribes the intellect. It reduces the intellect. So the highest things that man is made by God to seek with his mind, to know, those are denied at the outset. So we're not talking about a mistaken way of looking at Christ or a mistaken path to um, the vision of God. We're talking instead about a denial that that vision is even possible because the intellect itself as an intellect, rather than just as, you know, some kind of bodily organ is denied. Okay. It's a fundamental wrong gets the mind wrong. Um, well, we meet in this circle, a noble man, a man of powerful intellect. Um, he is in some ways a patriot parallel to Dante. Um, he suffered with his entire family, exile from Florence. And at the supposed time of this journey, the year 1300, his family still hasn't returned to Florence. Okay. Um, so in, in a way that, that, you know, he has got a powerful mind. He's been done uh, a harm by the Florentines, just as Dante has been, right? Uh, Virgil says to Dante, basically, this is a man to respect and pushes Dante to speak to him. Um, all at once, this grand figure, naked, rises to the waist from the tomb. You see, see all the heretics here, since the focus is on whether there even is an immortal soul, these heretics are buried in tombs with fire, okay? And the fire is a symbol of the fire of the intellect, but here it's fire that torments them, all right? 
they ought to be in a graveyard because that's what they said was the ultimate destiny for the mind of man, a graveyard. Okay, So they're in these tombs here, and he rises up, and without any introduction, he says, hey, you from Tuscany, I can hear it in your accent. Oh, Tuscan, you who speak with modest grace, alive and traveling through this city of fire, may it please you to pause here in this place. Your speech and accent make it clear to me. You were born in the noble fatherland I may have punished once too bitterly. And Virgil pushes him. Come on, come on. That's Farinata. Go talk to him. And make sure everything you say counts. Make your words count here. Um, Farinata looks at him a little bit askance and he says, where do you come from? And this is totally Italian. Who's your family? Who's your family? And Dante says who his family was. Now, his family were Guelphs. Farinata was a Ghibelline. They were of opposing parties. And uh, Farinata receives the news with a little bit of scorn. He raises his eyebrow a bit. It's like Mr. Spock in Star Trek. And he says, they were bold enemies of mine, fierce to my party and my ancestors, for which twice over I sent them scattering. And that's a challenge to Dante. Dante's not a shrinking violet, and he throws it right back in Farinata's face. Okay. If they were twice cast out, they twice returned. I thus responded, and from every side, an art which yours, it seems, have not well learned. In other words, your family isn't back yet. Now, that strikes Farinata with dismay. He didn't know that. And this is going to be the cause of some confusion in Dante, some puzzlement, because he's seen from another fellow Florentine earlier on in the circle of the gluttons, Chaco, the hog. Um, Chaco foretells the near future for Dante. He tells him what's going to happen in coming months. Coming, you know, a year later, this is going to happen. He basically foretells Dante's exile. But Farinata doesn't seem to know what's going on in Florence right now. What's up with that? Now, before, uh, before they continue their conversation, a second soul, rises up out of the tomb, but not to the waist, just only to the chin. And um, this is another this is another Ghibelline, a, a man who was accused, perhaps by his enemies, but maybe fairly, right, of being a materialist, of being a materialist heretic. This is the father of Dante's best friend and fellow poet, the father of Guido Cavalcanti. Cavalcante de Cavalcanti. And uh, in order to try to patch up affairs between the two big parties in Florence, Guido married the daughter of Farinata. Okay. So uh, Farinata is Guido Cavalcanti's father-in-law. So these, these are like the two fathers. They're sort of 
sort of kind of related by marriage. Okay. Um, think of, uh, let's say your own father and your wife's father or your father and your husband's father. Okay. They have that relation. They never speak to each other here. Okay. And Farinata doesn't even acknowledge his presence. Now, Farinata is um, a failed patriot. And we, what we have here in Guido's father is a failed father. And those two things are related, right? The virtue of patriotism is close to the virtue of piety. That is, you pay the debt that you owe to your mother and father, okay? To your ancestors, your family. Um, that extends to your native land, right? Um, so we have a patriot, but he fails as a patriot. And we have a father, and now he, we, I think we see that he fails as a father. Um, he's looking around. He doesn't care about Florence. That part of the conversation means nothing to him. Um, he's looking for his son, Guido. And he says, line, uh, page 103, if through this dungeon of the blind, you go by means of genius at its height. Per altezze d'ingegno. Where's my son? Why is he not with you? Where's my boy? Now, the um, question that I will always ask my students is, okay, look, you're in hell, all right? Why do you want to see your son? Don't you remember that you're in hell? Uh, and it, it, it gets even more uh, problematic here. Uh, Dante is a little bit puzzled. First, he says, I'm not here because of genius. See, that's the kind of thing that this material materialist, and I don't mean that when he say that he was materialist, that he was greedy or anything like that. I mean that he believed only in matter, okay? Not spirit. Um. Dante says, I, I'm not here because of genius, right? Uh, this guy here is leading me through this place for one year Guido may be held in scorn. So uh, he, he, he identifies Guido and it's mysterious. Who is this one that may be Guido scorned? Maybe God, maybe Christ, okay? Who's not to be named in, uh, in hell. I had read his name already by his words. I, I, from what he said to me, I knew who he was. And by the manner of his punishment. So there Dante is suggesting that it was kind of notorious, that it was well known that Guido's father was, you know, this kind of heretic. Um, so I replied in full. But suddenly he drew up right and cried, what do you mean you said he held? Isn't he still alive? Has the sweet sunlight ceased to strike his eyes? And when he noticed I was hesitant and didn't answer him immediately, he fell back and did not come out again. Really dramatic scene here, right? With sudden surprises. And, th and this is one. Well, he used the past tense. You used the past tense. You, you didn't say he holds. You said he held. It means that it means not a lot. Boom, he's down. We never see him again. Uh, but a simple question to ask if you are thinking with a clear mind. Let's suppose that Guido Cavalcanti is dead. And let's suppose that he's not here. What does that suggest as a strong possibility? It does suggest that Guido is not going to go to hell. Okay. 
But the father doesn't draw that conclusion. It's as if the father, though he's in hell right now, still can't conceive of anything on earth but physical life and then bodily death. And that's all. When he has proof positive to the contrary, he can't get past it. Uh, he's the he's a doting father who may have bequeathed to his son wrong beliefs about the universe, man's place in it, and about the mind. Uh, and he's still not thinking clearly. But Dante is now doubly puzzled. He, now, here's this guy. We got Farinata. He didn't know. He didn't know that his family had not returned. These guys can see a little bit into the future, but they, how come he didn't know where his family is right now? And how come this guy here, old Cavalcanti, doesn't know that Guido is still alive? Guido Cavalcanti would die in September of 1300. Okay. So, um, He's not dead yet. This is the Easter season. This is the Passion Tide of 1300. Okay, this is Good Friday of 1300. Guido has some six months to live yet. Um, Dante, by the way, uh, just to try to get peace in the city um, as a political official, he had to he had to exile his own best friend, uh, Guido Cavalcanti, from Florence. And Guido dies outside of Florence in the year 1300. How come the old man didn't know this? Um, well, this is puzzling, and he's going to ask Farinata about this. If Farinata, Farinata, you know, says, listen, um, that the fact that you told me that my family are not back in Florence, that is worse torment to me than these fires. But how come you Florentines are still so bitter against my family? And Farinata says, uh, Dante says, well, you know, hey, uh, do you remember the massacre, um, the Battle of Monteperti, uh, where the river was so much uh, soaked in blood that it ran red? And Farinata says, uh, well, yeah, there was that. But listen, I had good cause for that. I wasn't alone. But let me tell you when I was alone. Because after that battle, when the victors got together to meet, to decide whether to burn Florence to the ground, to destroy it utterly, and they were all bent to do it, I was the only one who stood up for her. And he did. Uh, and so powerful was he and so respected was he that his opinion carried the day and Florence was not destroyed. But the Florentines don't remember that. So he's got a grudge against them for being ungrateful. Dante has the same grudge against them for being ungrateful. Um, so they, he, he, there's a kind of there's a kind of bond between the two men here. Uh, and uh, so now Dante asks asks a favor. Got to clear up some puzzle that I have. Um, it seems that you can see we're on page 105 what time will bring before it comes to pass. So you can see a little ways into the future, but you can't see what's going on right now. That How is that? Now, you'll see that this is, this is like taking the human perception and turning it inside out. 
because we don't see the future. We only guess at the future, but we see the present. Um, the souls in hell, and this applies not just to the heretics, applies to all the souls in hell, um, are punished with this reversal. And the reversal comes with a dreadful uh, uh, sentence at the end of it. As a man with bad vision, he replied, we dimly see things far away. So much splendor the sovereign Lord still shines on us. They're, so they're like far-sighted people. If the thing is distant enough, they can kind of make it out. But the closer it comes, the less they see. In fact, they forget. When things draw near or happen, emptiness is all we see. If no one brings us news, we can know nothing of your human state. Now you can understand that evermore, dead will be all our knowledge from the time the future ends and judgment shuts the door. Um, that has as its um, physical emblem in this canto. Uh, what Virgil says about the lids on the tombs, okay? The, the tombs are open, the lids are hanging nearby. And Virgil says that on the day of doom, uh, these lids will be placed on the tombs and bolted fast. Uh, an emblem of the constriction, the finiteness of the human intellect. Think. As long as there is a future, the souls in hell can see a little bit of it. And the human mind is made by God to want to know and to have no bounds to the knowledge, to want, in fact, to see God face to face. We're made for that, okay? Only the infinite can satisfy us. But these souls here, and it's fitting that the heretic, the materialist heretic should say this, right? He's the one to tell us of it. They've denied that goal of the human mind. They've denied the infinity. They've denied that man is made to look upon God. And what we get for the punishment of all those who, through their deeds, have, have destroyed the possibility of this uh, divine knowledge, um, they get this, that on the day of doom, Time ends, okay? Um, there is eternity after the day of doom. But strictly speaking, time ends. There is no future. And that means, boom, that all the souls in hell will have is the past. The unchangeable past. The past that nothing can be done about the past to think about, to weigh upon them um, with no possibility of alteration. And knowledge forever limited only to what you know of your past. That's all, okay? Um, it's like, in fact, intellectually, it's like being in a hole with a ceiling above your head it's like being in hell, where you are told, 
give up all hope to look upon the sky. Right? Um, dead will be all our knowledge. Who else is here? Well, Emperor Frederick II, that's Thomas Aquinas' second cousin, by the way. Um, and a famous cardinal, a Ghibelline cardinal who said, I've sold my soul to hell for the Ghibelline party. Um, they're here. I don't want to talk about the rest. Bye. And he drops out of sight. Okay. Um, powerful, powerful stuff. I think you could probably make a really good Italian opera out of this business too. You know, um, but Farinata, Farinata would not be a tenor. You have to have Paolo of Rimini. He could be a tenor. Uh, Farinata would be a bass. Okay. Um, you know, uh, like, uh, like Don Giovanni and Mozart's, Mozart's opera. Well, this is, uh, well, I got six minutes before we uh, have our official stopping point. So I'll just say some general things about the structure of hell um, th that repeat uh, a few things I said yesterday, because uh, we are now in the city of Dis. Um, the city of Dis encloses those uh, souls who gave themselves over to things that are evil in their own right. Okay, so we're not talking about simply about the misuse of or the wrong love of something that by nature is good, right? So sexual desire by nature is very good. The body is very, very good. It's beautiful, okay? We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the wrong use of another good food and drink or the wrong use of physical wealth, right? We're now talking about people who are, um, who have embraced evil, okay? Um, and... Uh, it may be a surprise to modern readers that the worst of these are not the violent. Um, the worst of these are the frauds. Uh, we're going to get the uh, three circles of the violent first. And maybe I, I'd like to invite you to ask questions about the, the one that I find most interesting, those who are violent against God by, uh, by doing things that are unnatural, counter to nature. Um, and the suicides; those are the most interesting, I think. Um, and uh, uh, but but see, violence, violence—you don't pervert your human nature. What you do is not quite live up to your human nature. Instead, you drop to the level of a beast. It's bad to be a beast. It's worse to be a devil. Uh, to be a devil is to pervert that which separates you from the beasts. And the main um, uh, instrument of the intellect in human life is language itself, okay? What you say, what you say by means of words or signs, okay? Um, hence it is that Satan is called the father of lies, right? And when you get fraud and violence mixed together in, in treachery, that is, of course, the very worst of all. Um, the, uh, Dante has really expanded upon these circles because there are various ways in which you can be violent and 10, he has 10 different categories of frauds. Um, and he spends, you know, gosh, about 15 cantos on those, those alone, um, about 12 or 13 cantos. Um, and each pocket of the frauds is different from the other pockets and 
we sometimes get really different poetry there too. So uh, like one of my favorites is the pocket where you get the sticky fingered po politicians and the language there is suggestive of a really bad Three Stooges movie. Okay. Or a really excellent and brilliant, intellectually brilliant Three Stooges movie. Um, they're Stooges down there and the devils are Stooges too. Um, with stooge-like names, you know, Moeller, Larry, and Curly, and right. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll, we'll ju let's just pause here for ten minutes. This is a, a fit pausing place. Um, my clock says nine twenty-two. I don't know what yours says. So it, we'll we'll meet again in ten minutes. All right. And then you ask me questions. Okay. So I'll um, if people write okay. comments or questions, okay. yeah, I can read them for you. So uh, are we good go now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Here we are back again, and uh, now it's time for your questions. Um, and they can range all over the first 24 cantos. Okay, Professor Esselin, I have one. Okay. Hi, I'm Julia. Um, hey. Hi. Can you see me? I think so. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm an opera singer, actually, and I was wondering, wow, why has this not ever been set to music? Probably be, maybe because it's so epic. Uh, there's, there's so many sinners to cover that perhaps, you know, an opera can only do a slice of something. I, I would be really surprised to learn that uh, the story of Paolo and Francesca has not been turned into an opera. Oh, it has. There are it two. Has. Yes, okay. one by Rachmaninoff and one by the Italian San Donai. Okay. okay. Yeah, and it's named after Francesca, Francesca da Rimini. Francesca da Rimini, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But my question was, um, as we're reading this and as you're describing it, I literally feel my soul kind of shaking. And... Um, you know, because there, but for the grace of God, am I? And um, was this part of the reason Dante wrote it? Is it, is it a warning? For certain. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, uh, we we take we take for granted that I don't know why we take it for granted, but if, if you ask kids. Even kids that come from Catholic schools, if you say, is there a, an objective moral order to the world? They, they'll hear that word objective and they'll balk and they'll say, uh, 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 well, I think there is, but I don't want to impose that on anybody else. And then you've got to ask them, get, well, is this order real? Does it exist? And they'll say, well, I think it does, but... I'm not asking you whether you think it does. I'm asking you to answer the question, yes or no. Um, well, everybody in the Middle Ages believed in an objective moral order. And uh, most writing in the Middle Ages of any, of any length um, has, sometimes it's, it's kind of tricky to tell because they're really smart dudes. They, they, they you know, they're, um, they, they, the, the, Tales are uh, are complicated, uh, but they always have a moral aim, all right. And um, they take for granted that if you are writing something of any uh, of any size, 
it's going to have a moral end. Um, it's going to be meant to teach in some funny way. Now, maybe the teaching is indirect and sly, right? But nevertheless, uh, they assume that it would be there. Um, and it wouldn't matter what kind of poetry you're writing. You could be writing, you know, smackdown comic uh, stories such as you find some of in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, uh, or you could be writing uh, what the medievals con would consider to have been a tragedy. Um, it, it wouldn't matter. I mean, I'd take it for granted that we read things in order to put them to moral use. And certainly this is a warning, okay? Uh, and probably it's also a warning to himself, right? Because he, he's putting himself in this position. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd be damned. Yes, thank you. Any questions about any of the violent or the fraud? The fraud. Can I ask? Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Well, um, well, this is about uh, the suicides. Um, I notice. Um, um, well. Of course, I, you can't deny the setting is very reminiscent of Canto One. Um, I wonder if there's any reason um, behind um, that. Um, is it perhaps bio, biographical that perhaps maybe Dante's? I, I haven't read anything, but it's a very uh, uh, ungrounded hypothesis that perhaps Dante considered suicide as well. Let me say that. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, there are there are kinds of sins, I suppose, that Dante was really strongly tempted by. Now, there is, as with Farinata, there is a biographical connection to be drawn between uh, Dante and the main suicide that we meet in Canto 13. Uh, his name is Pierre de la Vigne. Okay? Um, Dante has two very important things in common with this man. One is they are both poets. Okay. Pierre de la Vigne is a poet. He's a poet working in the love poetry tradition that Dante himself was working in. He's writing in Southern Italian. He's writing in Sicilian. Uh, the other thing is that he was a man at court. He was a man involved in politics. Um, he was high up at court, so he he was one of the uh, he was the most trusted counselor of the Emperor Frederick II. That's the same guy that Farinata says is in hell with him in his tomb, right? Frederick II called the, the stupor mundi, the wonder of the world, for his for his intellect. I mean, he, like he's, I said, he's the second cousin of Thomas Aquinas. Um, Dante puts him in hell. Uh, Dante admired him, though. Dante admired Frederick for his capacity as, as emperor, okay? Um, and so Pierre de la Vigne is a loyal servant and counselor of this emperor. And he's accused of treason. And he's accused by people who envy him because he's so close to Frederick. And Frederick believes the people who accuse him, and he puts him in prison. Um, and that's where Pierre kills himself. Okay. Um, 
I believe he brained himself. That is, he knocked out his own brains by running headlong against the wall. Um, he killed himself. Okay. And he thought that he would defeat the scorn of his enemies by scorning their scorn. All right. And he wants very much that Dante, when he returns back to the world, to prop up his reputation and say, I was never disloyal to Frederick. All right. And Dante promises to do this. So I, though I don't know that Dante was tempted to suicide. He, there are strong bonds between him and that guy that we do meet. But there's also, there are also kinds of weird self-contradictory ironies in, uh, in Pierre de Lavinia. I, I want to, I'll point one, these, these out to you. Go, um, now to Cano 13. Um, and, uh, this on page 133, around line 64. Now the, the Cano is full of self-contradictions and weird ironies because first of all, you don't have human bodies that Dante sees there. You have trees, right? Um, and uh, Dante, Virgil tells Dante, why don't you snap one of the twigs off that tree there? And you're going to see something. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. So you have to experience it. And he does. And blood comes out. And after the blood there sputters out a voice, okay? And though Dante has just snapped off a twig, the voice is like the voice of somebody who's just been dismembered. Why do you mangle me? Isn't there any pity in your soul? Why do you mangle me? Why do you hack at me? Uh, this is kind of ironic, right? Because these are people who threw their bodies away. And now they're really, really tender towards these ugly thorn trees that they're imprisoned inside. You know, really solicitous for the integrity of these thorn trees um, that caused them pain because the harpies chew on the leaves and so on, right? Um, so now it's this guy who says, I, I, was, I was Frederick's trusted counselor, um, but she who never turns her eyes from Caesar's house, the harlot envy, vice of the court, and death for all mankind, inflamed against me every other soul. And the inflamed, inflamed Augustus, so that my glad honors turn to mournful gloom. You say, what the heck kind of language is that? But if you look at the Italian on the left, there it is, uh, envy infiamo, inflamed, contra me gli animi tutti, e gli infiammati infiammar si augusto, che gli ti onor tornaro in tristi, tornaro in tristi lut. Um, the language is really strange. Um, you got verb up against verb there. That's highly unusual. That's unnatural. Okay? That's thoroughly artificial. Um, in a high, complicated, over-ornate style. 
And there's something about the logic of suicide that is like the language here. There's no logic in suicide. It's a tangle, okay? And it continues in this vein. My spirit relishing the taste of scorn, thinking that I could flee their scorn in death, made me against myself, though just, unjust. And you say, Dr. Esling, that is awful as a line of poetry. And I say, listen, it's supposed to be awful. Because if you look at uh, the Italian, this, what I did, uh, committing suicide, injusto fece me contra me justo. The whole thing is a mess. The whole whole thing is is it's like concentrated illogic. It made me against me, me contra me, injusto me contra me justo, unjust me against me just. Okay, um, and that there's the logic of of his suicide. There, I punished an innocent man in order to justify myself before these liars who envied me. And I thought that I would scorn their scorn by committing suicide. And though I was just, I made myself unjust against myself, committing an innocent man to death. And of course, he's he's there in the prison being condemned to death but he forestalls them by killing himself. Uh, If you say this is illogical, Dante says, yes, that's the point. If you say the verbal tangle that I'm in here is crazy, Dante will say that's the point, right? Um, And uh, uh, the the further question is, well, you guys... um, can you ever get free of these trees? And uh, Pierre says, no, okay. Um, Not even at the resurrection of the dead, okay? So you turn to page 135, line 103. Um, We're basically just flung here, like something thrown at random. And wherever it hits, there it springs up into this tree, okay? Now, at the resurrection of the flesh, we too will come to take our sloughed off skins, but none of us will put them on again. It is not just to have what one has stripped. Here we will drag our bodies through the dust, and on this sad wood's branches they will hang, each by the thorns of its assaulting soul. The human person is made by God to be a body-soul union. And the suicides have committed this fundamental act of illogic and violence against the integrity of the human person. So they are reunited with their bodies in a way that emphasizes the uh, lack of union, right? That, that they will essentially be always apart from the bodies that they have thrown away. So the body just gets slung over the branches of the tree. It's there, it, it's, its proximity is an ironic and deeply painful reminder 
that you will never have that union again. Okay. Not even in hell. Right. Professor. Yeah. On that same note, um, Jonathan Roberts asked, did Dante put the suicides in trees because quote, cursed is he who hangs on a tree and quote, which I believe okay. is from Deuteronomy. I think. And an interesting question. I'd have to think about that. Um, uh, we, you might think of uh, the most obvious way of committing suicide in those days would be to hang yourself. Um, maybe he's thinking of that. Uh, it, the, the tree, though, suggests something. Um, well, uh, we're body-soul unions, and they are transformed to something less than beasts. Okay? So it, it isn't that they descend to the level of a beast. They descend even lower. To, to the level of vegetable, right? Um, and perhaps that's why. So you get this weird kind of thing where there's proximity and no union. You got vegetable, you got animal, you got uh, spiritual, and there's no union at all, right? Um, maybe maybe that's what motivated him. I think he wanted to have a bleeding tree somewhere in the poem because Virgil's source, Homer has a bleeding tree. Virgil has a bleeding tree. So Dante's got to have a bleeding tree. And by the way, every epic poet after Dante has to have a bleeding tree. Okay. Um, sometimes it's comic, but every Spencer has a bleeding tree. Um, Ariosto and Tasso, bleeding trees. You know, it's one of those things that you got to check off on your epic checklist. Okay. I got warriors, right? Um, uh, I've got a catalog of ships or whatever, but I, Get my be bleeding tree in there. Oh, got my bleeding tree. <laughs> well, can I, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Hi, my name's Angel. I have a question about memory. Okay. I saw kind of at least three different kinds. Retrospective, where Dante is remembering having right. been in the Inferno. Contemporary, where the shades and Dante are recognizing each other. And then long lasting, where the shades want to be remembered by those who are still living. And right. I wondered um, what for Dante is the significance of memory and what is the relationship between memory, life's purpose, and the salvation of one's soul? Uh, a complicated question that gets us to the heart of what the intellect even is. Okay, um, Memory for Dante and for the poets who followed in his wake for several hundred years Memory is not simply what we would consider it to be a record of things that happen. Um, it's essential to the intellectual soul, all right? Um, and it, it's not simply passive. We don't just record things. It's active. Um, it's a power of the imagination. So um, th this actually is uh, 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 in, the, in the Roman canon of, of the Mass, um, the, the the second part of the Eucharistic prayer begins with the words unde et memores, and the adjective memores referring to us means um, not just that we remember, but that we are mindful, okay, that we deliberately bring something back to mind, okay, and that bringing of something back to mind is, um, is a creative and intellectual act, right? Now, the souls in hell those who did noble things on earth do want to be remembered for that. It's the only good that they really can enjoy. But we're going to meet souls who most definitely do not want to be remembered. 
okay? Um, we're gonna we're gonna meet souls lower down. The traitors, for instance, some of them, uh, you know, we don't know who really was the traitor in that battle. Uh, it was me, but I don't want news of that to get back on Earth. Um, a man named Guido de Montefeltro dies with the apparent, uh, in the apparent state of holiness. And Dante, in fact, shows him to have been a liar, a giver of evil counsel at the very end. And he really doesn't want news about him to get back. Uh, but in general, in general, uh, the memory is, is a blessed and holy thing, right? Um, God's memory, so to speak, is identical with his sight and his providence because God sees all things in an eternal present. For God, memory and uh, vision and um, foresight are all the same, all one act, right? For us who live in time, these uh, faculties are somewhat, but only somewhat distinct. Um, in eternity, we will enjoy um, uh, uh, that kind of vision that combines past, present, and future in, in something that reflects the eternal vision of God. Um, some memory, uh, memory for Dante is crucially important. It, it comes back again and again in Purgatory, for instance. Um, uh, one of the one of the features of the souls who are cleansed is that their memories will be healed um, in two ways. They will forget their sins, not that they committed them, because those are facts, but Rather, they forget them as theirs. It's as if somebody else had committed them. Uh, they're washed in the river Lethe. So the, uh, the fact that that person did that thing is no longer a constitutive part of his person. And then they are the memory of the good things they have done is restored to them. Memory of, of virtuous deeds that they may have forgotten is restored. Um, so there's a healing of memory. Uh, it's related to salvation itself and, and, and the end of time when all of human history will come to its uh, fit consummation um, in, in the vision of God. That will mean that everything that happened in the past will now have assumed its proper um, place in this order. It already is in this order that God has created, but then we, we the blessed will be able um, to the extent of their blessedness to perceive it, to participate in this um, memory of God, which is also direct vision and so on. I hope that explains. It's a very important thing for him. He will often be referring to memory, especially in purgatory. Okay. Um, more questions? Yes, sir. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Um, okay. You're muted. Patrick, when you figure that out, I'm going to read a different <laughs> question. Okay. Okay. So this is from Cody. Um, and he asks, I'm wondering if there's a connection between Dante and the painter Hieronymus Bosch particularly the, the Divine Comedy and the painting Garden of Earth 
sleep with the lights. If there is no connection, what explains their similarities? In particular, the images they use to depict hell. There is a connection because Hieronymus Bosch was uh, a learned enough fellow and he would have read the Divine Comedy. Um, so uh, I, I'll just say that right out. Okay. Um, the, uh, the, the really tricky question is whether Dante is being read in England. Chaucer read him, okay, but whether uh, Shakespeare and his contemporaries read him, that's a little bit of a tricky question. They read Italian poets um, of their own century, but whether they got their hands on the medieval Italian of Dante, uh, that's maybe yes, maybe no, okay. Um, but they're far north, they're way up there, Um Everybody's reading Dante in the Romance languages. You know, everybody's reading Dante um, on the continent in the western part of the continent. Everybody's reading Dante until until about the year uh, maybe seventeen hundred, when Dante falls out of favor, um, returns to favor in the Romantic period. But for about a hundred years outside of Italy, nobody is reading Dante anymore uh, because he's medieval. You know. Um, his reputation returns in the 19th century and now is fully established as one of the greats ever. So Hieronymus Bosch read Dante, right? Now, uh, but they also both drew upon the uh, demons of the popular imagination and popular uh, and common Christian iconography, okay? So uh, Hieronymus Bosch, um, you, you look at his painting there and you compare it with uh, scenes sculpted on uh, medieval cathedrals, um, things having to do with the damned, all right? Uh, you can see certain similarities, right? Um, it, imagine imagine like you're, you're a gifted 15-year-old boy and the master, the master builder says, um, you know, hey, Joey, uh, we got a corner over there. I want it illustrated with a scene from hell. Um, so can you do some devils tormenting a soul? And 15-year-old boy uh, Giuseppino says, oh, nice throw. Oh, I'd love to do that. And he throws all of his energy into it, and you get the kind of thing that you get. Um, that's to be found uh, all throughout Europe and in illuminated manuscripts, too. Because basically the idea is that devils are stupid, right? They're, they have powerful intellects. So you ought to be afraid of them, but they're stupid because they get everything wrong, right? Um, so uh, the, the iconographers, the sculptors, the painters, illuminators, they, they, they have full freedom with the stupidity of the demons and the stupidity of human beings who fall to them, right? Um, it, it, evil is to be ridiculed. The idea that evil is somehow noble, you know, it's grand, that sort of thing. That's foreign to the medieval understanding. Evil is stupid. S-T-O-O-P-I-D, stupid. Okay. And Hieronymus Bosch is in that tradition too. Um, I have a question. Is my, uh, can you hear me now? Now. Great. Um, I was wondering what Brunetto Latini is doing in the Ring of the Sodomites and why Dante seems to compare 
uh, him and Virgil a lot, right? Making Virgil sort of Dante's father figure and Brunetto also a father figure of Dante. Um, if you could explain something with regards to that. Yeah, okay. Uh, if, if anybody ever says Dante only puts his political enemies in hell, that is obviously not true. You've obviously not read the Divine Comedy because he puts a lot of his political allies in hell. Uh, and Brunetto Latini was one. Um, he puts him in hell for being a sodomite because he was a sodomite, right? Um, uh, if, if we are to trust Dante, that's why he's there. Um, he had homosexual desires and acted upon them. Um, he's there with, uh, frankly, a lot of scholars. And maybe it's an occupational hazard uh, with scholars who hang around boys all the time because that's part of their job to teach boys. Uh, to fall into this sin, okay? Um, it, in ancient Rome, uh, it was taken for granted that a lot of these teachers of boys were whatever. Um, so, uh, I mean, that, that explains that part of the question. It's a simple fact. Uh, and it's something that Brunetto is ashamed of here, okay? Um, he says a filthy thing. Uh now, he is comparable to Virgil in a limited sense. Brunetto Latini was a poet, um, not an epic poet. Um, you know, he, he wrote his uh, tesoro, a sort of treasury of verse, moral verse. Um, he's for Dante a kind of uh, moral teacher as regards life in society, as regards the city. Okay. Um, and in, in that way, he's so to speak a father for Dante. He's an older man. Dante was young. Um, he doesn't teach Dante about poetry so much. He teaches Dante about what it is to be a man of the intellect to work for the good of your city. Right, so he he stands to da in relation to Dante in that way as Virgil stands for, him, because Virgil is the great poet of the Roman Empire. Okay, um, well, Brunetto Latini is a minor poet um, and a counselor in the city of Florence. Okay, um, and these guys did believe that you make yourself a great name in the world by doing things of merit for your city, okay? Doing things of honor. That's how man acquires an eternal name, an, an everlasting reputation. Um, it's not, Brunetto is not teaching Dante uh, the high philosophy of Plato or Aristotle. It's the more um, practical, everyday, local philosophy of good government and uh, general moral behavior in society. Um, and uh, uh, Brunetto says, if I had lived longer, I'd, I had furthered you in your work, which I interpret not to mean I, I would have advanced you in your poetry, because Dante was already writing poetry that was not like Brunetto Latini's. Okay? But I would have advanced you in your career as a Florentine counselor, a Florentine politician. Um, but I died. And uh, like Farinata, Brunetto Latini is one with Dante in that they both have legitimate grudges against the city, okay? Um, 
Brunetto says that city has gone to pot. Okay. And it's because of all these, you got to think like an Italian. It's because, you know, I mean, that city was founded by people from Fiesole. Come off it. What did you expect would happen? <laughs> um, Fiesole is the village on the mountain uh, next to Florence. Okay. And if you're a Florentine, the one of the things that you do, it's required, you know, it, it's like you need Florent, you want Florentine citizenship. It's required to look down upon the Fiesolans as rednecks, hillbillies. Okay. Gotta do it. If you gotta pass your Florentine exam, you've got to express a contempt for those hillers up there in Fiesole. Um and uh, so Brunetto indulges some of this. Yeah, they all come from Fiesole. Uh, what do we expect? And, and you know, they were traitors from the beginning. Uh, they were traitors against Caesar. Oh, come on. What do we expect from these? Um, so he's, they, they speak the same language there. Um, they loved the same kinds of uh, earthly things when it came to uh, uh, civic good. And... Um, and Dante is really sad to meet him there. My gosh, it's like the meeting of Vir with him with Virgil, but it's not like it. Um, it's going to it's going to be echoed twice in Purgatory. But if you meet somebody that you don't expect in Purgatory, that's a happy occasion. Okay, um, you meet somebody that you don't expect in Hell, that's a profound disappointment. I mean, he says in Italian, Ser Brunetto, siete voi qui. And he uses voi, that's the pronoun of respect. Siete voi qui, Ser Brunetto. Are, it's almost impossible to translate. Are you, that is you of all people, here? Here of all places, Ser Brunetto. Um, and Brunetto courteously pleads with him to walk along with him a little while. Uh, Brunetto is down below. Virgil and Dante are walking on top of a dike. Um, they, they're, they're shielded from the burning fire. So Brunetto, the elder, walks not at the same level of Dante. He's lower, right? Um, but there's this, there's this warmth between them that's unmistakable. We don't deny it. A real feeling. Of, and uh, just a profound disappointment. Oh, Lord, it's you. And that's after Brunetto, who finally sees Dante, you know, he's trying to make, make him out in the darkness. Que maravilla! Holy cow! What wonder is this? And Dante can barely make out Brunetto Latini, not just because it's dark, but because the fire has blistered the features of his face. And in the ruins of that face and in the from his voice, too, it dawns on him, oh no, it's Ser Brunetto. Um, so does that answer the question? We're, um, keep it in mind for Canto 2 of Purgatory, where we're going to get something that looks like this. And the person is another Florentine, and he has something to do with Dante's poetry. And Dante also does not expect to see him there. But the circumstances are quite different. Right? And yes, there will be a connection between 
the meeting of Dante with this friend in purgatory and Virgil, who is standing right beside Dante witnessing it. Okay, so just keep it in mind because we're going to see replays of it. All right. Um, Dr. Exelan, I yes. have a question. Um, yes. If I can ask another question. Sure. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask about specific lines. I think it's com somewhat related to the previous canto okay. that you're talking about, um, Canto 15. Um, in yeah, lines no, 55, okay. uh, there's a mention, uh, Brunetto tells Dante, uh, I'm sorry, I'm referring to a different translation. I wish I had uh, an access to your translation, but it's hard to find in the Philippines. Um, okay. Um, he, uh, in my translation, um, this is by uh, Alan Mandelbaum. He says, "If you if you pursue your star, you cannot fail to reach a splendid harbor." Um, and um, I see again um, the, the the use of the word star in a somewhat um, um, same trajectory in Canto Twenty Six uh, later on um, when um, the, um, uh, where, where is Ulysses. It? Yeah, with Ulysses. Um, when uh, this is in line. Um, um, 20, well, it begins 19 until um, 24, but I'll just read the line. Um, uh, Dante says, um, and more than usual, I curb my talent that it not run where virtue does not guide. So, so that if my, so that if my kind star or something better has given me that gift, I not abuse it. And I was wondering how Dante understands, uh, uh, how, how he understands the word star. How does he use the word star here? Okay, uh, my sense, yeah, my, my sense is that it's somewhat related to talent or mind uh, in, in genio, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, this is a great question. And um, we'll probably revisit it at least once as the course goes on, because uh, I don't know if you know this, but every, each of the three major sections of the divine comedy so each of the canticles ends with the word stelle stars okay um and that's that's important um her eyes were flashing brighter than the star says virgil um about beatrice's first meeting with beatrice okay uh stella is is crucial in the imagination and we we are we are mankind um not beasts so we naturally do something very mysterious. And I, I um, you know, materialists, I would like them to explain to me why uh, man looks up at the stars and would find it uh, just the cruelest punishment in the world not to see the stars, right? I, I go outside, I look up at the sky. I look up at the stars. Um, I look up at the stars. My dog doesn't do that. Uh, so there's star can mean can suggest that flight of the soul towards God, okay, towards heaven and the God who made the heavens. Uh, but it it has other functions too. So uh, there there is believed, and Dante shares this belief. And this is not exactly astrology. He does not believe that you can tell the future by looking at the stars, but he does seem to believe that the heavenly bodies shed some influence upon uh, uh, the soul's, the spiritual and intellectual constitutions of people born on earth, right? Um, that's not prognostication, which he condemns as uh, 
being a con artist. If you say you can read the stars and tell the future, Dante puts you with the frauds, with the diviners in hell. You're 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 a con artist. You know, you're fooling people. You can't do that, right? The witches are in the same category. Um, they they're they're frauds, right? Uh, however, he did believe that the the each of the planets sheds some peculiar influence upon people born on Earth, and uh, the stars generally do. Okay, the planets are those ones you notice in the sky because they're not always in the same position. They move relative to the constellation. Constellations are, as it were, fixed in place. They rotate about the celestial pole. But relative to each other, they always have the same position. But the planets don't have the same position relative to the fixed stars. And so we know that they are planets. They occupy lower spheres, each one with its peculiar sphere and its peculiar speed of motion, uh, each one a different distance from the Earth um, and with its own quality, right? So Mars, uh, Mars is the god of war. I mean, Mars born, to be born under Mars is to be born with a warlike spirit. Um, so when Brunetto says, if you follow your star, it could mean in him, if you follow, if you follow the talents that you were born with, okay, um, you will be led to a glorious port, right? However, the language is ambiguous. Um, it also suggests if you follow your star, that is to say, um, Beatrice, you will be led to the port of glory. But it would be kind of strange for Brunetto to mean that because he is in hell and he is not associated with either with theological poetry or with love poetry, right? He's associated with civic morality. Um, but uh, understood in that context, it could mean, right? If you, you follow those endowments that you had at your birth, by the way, that, that those endowments are called ingenio, okay? Um, your ingenuity, that's the native talent you were born with. It comes from the Latin uh, verb um, to be born, right? Um, and, uh, you know, gnasco, gnascare, uh, you know, it's this thing you were born with, right? Um, then you will achieve great things. Um that's how I read it anyway, okay? Though it seems yeah. to be open to the bigger interpretation. Can I follow up? Um, it's just a, yeah. a, is it possible, uh, because I, I, I got reminded of uh, the Tesoro in the context of Latini. Um, yeah. He also wrote, perhaps um, it's a, a sort of like a, a writerly tradition that um, the star there where, where he says that it, uh, it would give you the, uh, the harbor, perhaps he's maybe thinking of a... Uh, uh, um, if you follow your star, if you, you if you pursue your talent, you you perhaps harbor. He meant um, maybe patron, perhaps is is that harbor. possible? Uh, maybe you'd reach your patron if you if you pursue your star. Perhaps that's a possibility. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a possibility. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that you've got to be following the right star, and you've got to be following it for the right reason, right? So Ulysses, who, who sends forth uh, out onto the sea, and to sail means to look up at the stars, right? Understand. You, you don't sail without looking up the stars. You have to look up at the stars, all right? 
Um, Ulysses is following the stars, but he's following the stars out of presumption, arrogance, and um, he will drown, right? You guys have not, you've not got to Canto 26 yet. You haven't read that. Um, but the journey of Ulysses out onto the Western Ocean is in some ways comparable to Dante's uh, voyage to the other world. And Ulysses' voyage is called Fole, that is foolish, crazy, insane. And Dante worries in Canto 2, he says to Virgil, I'm afraid that this trip that I'm going on is Fole, right? Is, is crazy, is insane. Um, well, it would be if you were following the wrong stars or if you were following the stars for the wrong reasons, uh, doing this thing out of pride. Um, and uh, you would end up you would end up wrecking your boat and drowning at the very shores of purgatory. We don't know that. You're not supposed to know that yet, but that's where it is. Um, at the very boundary of eternal salvation, you wreck. Okay. Um, and Dante is, Dante is really worried because he's a very proud man and he understands that the temptation to intellectual pride is strong in him. Um, he's got affinities with this Ulysses. Um, so he's got to be really careful. He's got to be watchful. Um, other questions? Questions about bad popes, for instance. Don't you like the punishment of the bad popes? Upside down in parodies of baptismal fonts and in a parody of baptism, you, you know, you, you, you get the oil, the chrism that makes you one with Christ on your forehead. Okay. Um, and so to speak, the baptismal fire, the fire of the Holy Ghost descends upon you. Well, instead, they're upside down and the soles of their feet are slicked with oil. Okay. Their feet. And the oil is lit on fire. Um, imagine how much that hurts. Um, and you're upside down. And that's how you would be punished with capital punishment if you were a hired assassin. Buried alive. Upside down. So the is folks are also compared to hired assassins. Uh, yeah? Is there something also about how St. Peter was crucified upside down? Obviously, oh, that's yes, absolutely. Thing, yeah. These are all supposed to be successors of St. Peter. But instead, instead of, um, instead of being wedded to the bride of Christ, which is the church, they become pimps of the bride of Christ. So they use the church as a prostitute, okay? They send the church out to, to go a-whoring, and they get the take of the money, okay? Um, so it's it's thorough perversion of, of the, all that marriage symbolism with regard to Christ and the church, and then Peter and the church, okay? And his successors in the church, Um yeah, I mean, Peter was, uh, legend has, Peter was crucified upside down because he did not want uh, to be crucified in the same fashion as his master was. So it was an act of humility. Um, well, here being planted upside down like this is the punishment of humiliation. 
um, because these people were proud. They used the church for, um, for their own personal gain. All right. And I, I'd like to be really clear about this too. We are not just talking about money. All right. Um, we're talking about power generally. Okay. Uh, Boniface the eighth, whom Dante hates, he's his political and ecclesiastical enemy, and he's Pope during the year 1300. Uh, Boniface is an old man by this time, and in his personal morals, he is, he does not live the rich life, okay? He is uh, an austere man. He's not given to the high life. Um we would be hard pressed to accuse him of using the church for money. He uses the church for power. All right. And uh, that's the same for Dante. Um, if, if the church, if you turn the church into your career for your personal advancement in power, then that's what you are. Okay. You're, you're with these guys down there. Right, that's a bigger idea of it than just using church for money, and you don't have to be pope either. Uh, any kind of uh, church office, ecclesiastical office, you use the ecclesiastical office in order to gain power, right? Then you are with these pimps, um, and you get planted upside down, and and you have a layman coming to you. To ask who you are, and the layman has to be like a friar who goes up to hear the last confession of a hired assassin before they cover him with the dirt, who's planted upside down and can't see him face to face. So the ecclesiastic is in the position of the assassin, and Dante the layman is in the position of the ecclesiastic. Right? Then everything is upside down. And boy, does Dante heap some scorn on that Pope down there. He says, you know what? Would you kindly tell me, because I don't know. When uh, they were replacing Judas with Matthias, uh, how much did St. Peter say, okay, pal, we'll make you one of the apostles. What kind of deal will you give us? Surely he said no more than follow me. Right, Jesus, and Jesus didn't go out to St. Peter and say, hey, you know, Pete, Pete, I could make you chief of the apostles, you know, but I'm kind of short on money. Um, Jesus says, no, follow me. And they, they didn't want cash from Matthias. So good for you that you're down there. Good for you. <laughs> um, Virgil gives him a hug for that, you know. So Virgil Hagen, he's listening to this. Virgil's rooting for Dante. Dante's in the position of a churchman, even though he's a layman, and there's the churchman down there, supposed to be the head of the church, in the position of hired assassin. Only Dante could do something like this. You know, it's, a, it's all concentrated in like fifty or sixty lines. Um, amazing. Uh, more questions, uh, Professor. Yes. Uh, sp speaking of the uh, the pimps, and okay. that's a transition I rarely get to use. But speaking <laughs> of the pimps. Uh, <laughs> uh, don't you ever talk about the House of Representatives? 
Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, both panders and then a little bit later, uh, I think in the first hour, intermediaries. Yeah. Right. Um, the author is intermediary. Um, and there's there's a certain kind of at least base similarity between the two. They're both go-betweens. That's right. Um, I would presume that the difference, the primary difference is intent, but I, I wonder if you could say a few things about that. Yeah. Uh, you know who saw this? Um, the first Dante professor ever. Okay. So the first man who gave public lectures on the poetry of Dante was the fellow Florentine poet Boccaccio, whose life overlapped with Dante, right? Dante dies, Boccaccio's a young man. Boccaccio loved the poetry of Dante, and he became what we might call the first professor of Dante. Now, Boccaccio, a different spirit. He didn't write the epic. He, he's, he's the comic. Um, and his most famous work is a set of 100 stories reflecting the hundred cantos of the divine comedy. But most of the stories are comic and some of them are scandalously sexy. Okay. Um, and uh, he calls with his tongue in his cheek, he calls his work, the Decameron, that is the work of 10 days because 10 young people each tell a story in each of 10 days. They have escaped to a country villa from the Black Death. And to uh, pass the time, they tell stories. Okay, Each of them tells a story in each of 10 day, successive days. He calls his work as a kind of a second title, Prince Galahalt, uh, Galeotto. And Galahalt in the Arthurian legends was the guy who brought Lancelot and Guinevere together. Not Galahad, that's a different person. Galahalt. So that the name in Italian means pimp. Galeotto. Okay? And that is exactly the word that Dante uses in, um, puts it in Francesca's mouth when she says, a pander was that author. And his book. Galeotto fu il libro e chi lo scrisse. A Galahalt was the book and the man who wrote it. So Boccaccio says, Hey, my Decameron here. Uh, it's also called the Prince Galahalt. Because if you read it, if you read it in your times of trouble, you will laugh. I will make you laugh. I will give you pleasure. My book is a go-between. All right. But it perhaps also is, hey, you know, you guys, if you really read my book, you'll see that, in fact, in a different way, I am the same kind of intermediary that Dante was. And uh, perhaps if you read my book really carefully, you'll see that uh, I have in mind for you not just physical pleasure here on Earth, not just a good time, but something bigger than that, all right? However, I have to, I'll tell you, right, uh, the first professor of Dante is acutely aware that Dante himself has set up this parallel, right? Um, the parallel between the intermediary between a human soul and eternal bliss, 
is somehow, right, similar to the person who hooks up the man and the woman in fornication or adultery, right? And sometimes uh, who does that for gain, okay? I get, I, I get something out of this. I get money or I get fame, okay? Um, so it, it, your question is, uh, is, is, a, is a very shrewd one, and it's one that both authors are quite aware of. Um, more questions. We got. We hey, we've got. Uh, we've got a couple more minutes yet. The July. Sorry, sorry. I was going to ask if you like the Three Stooges, but go ahead. Uh, I was just going to read a question from Cody. He says, "Should the Divine Comedy be read primarily as a social criticism?" No. Um, <laughs> uh, no. No. You, you know it. It. Uh, it should be read primarily as a work of art because that's the kind of thing that it is. Okay. Um, and uh, we do have to insist upon its primary integrity and its primary being itself as an artwork. It should be read as a poem. Okay. Now, um, then if you ask a subsidiary question, if you read it as a work of moral instruction, um, which medievals assumed you would probably be doing if you were reading. Um, what kind of instruction should it be? And then I would say, no, we should not limit it to um, a living in society. That's too narrow a view. It's a really big part of it, right? Because human beings are meant to live in society. But it's only a part of it. Um, it's a poem about the entire universe. The entire physical universe, the entire spiritual universe, man, uh, all creatures, the creator, all of time, the whole stretch of time from creation to the end of the world, uh, and the, the whole of human history that that embraces. Um, the poem's about everything. There's nothing that the poem is not about. Okay. Um, and that's... And it, there's just about nothing that you can think of that the poem does not address. We don't write like that anymore. Um, they assume that if you were a really, really great writer, that's what you were going to be doing. Why? Um, Probably a question too long for two minutes left. But go ahead. Go ahead and ask it anyway. We'll why? end with this question. <laughs> well, mine why? was just why. Why don't we? Oh, why don't we? Um, but I think I talked over someone else. So. No, 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 that's okay. Uh, well, I don't know if it's okay, but uh, why don't we? Because, um, look, I, I mean, if you have, I'll give you my answer, right? If, if your basic attitude towards the world is, is secular, even if you go to church on Sunday, uh, you are just not going to produce art of the very greatest kind. Your vision is too narrow, you know? Um, you're not going to build the medieval cathedrals. It never occurred to you to build the medieval cathedrals. Um, you're not going to write the Divine Comedy. Uh, in fact, I think uh, in our time, all the arts, they first were narrowed down, constricted in scope. And now, worse than that, there so many of them are just in collapse. Uh, poetry is almost unread. And some of it that's produced is unreadable. It's, 
know, it's no longer an important part of everybody's life. Uh, sacred art. Just open your hymnals. Okay. And the strange thing is I thought for a long time this was a plague that affected only the United States of America. Really lousy art in hymnals. Then I started living in Canada in the summer. I said, oh, my gosh, their hymnals are even worse than ours. Uh, but apparently this, this also characterizes stuff in Italy, Spain, every place. Um, this modern world has got a, a, an artistic collapse because the secular vision doesn't feed the soul. It starves the soul. So that's why, that's why I would say. Um, okay. And I think now we are out of time. Um, so, uh, uh, let's, let's end with prayer and, uh, uh, in the name of the father and of the son, and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And St. John Henry Newman, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, copyright 2021, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved. <laughs>